podcast is the message from October 22nd. Siblings in Christ, grace and peace be with you from Jesus Christ, who asks inconvenient questions. Amen. I never participated in debate club in high school. Did any of you do debate when you were in high school or college? Any of you? Anybody? Michael did. One, two, a couple of you, three. That figures, Janice. (laughs) 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 Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's good. We're going to talk about how this is a good thing most of the time, right? I didn't do any of that. I didn't do mock trial or oral interp or in college we just had philosophy majors. That's what we called them. I knew people, though, that were super intense about debate. They had their preferred roles on the debate team. They had their notebooks of choice. They even had their choice of pen that always wrote and didn't smear or smudge. And they had all of those pieces as part of their argumentative arsenals. And irritatingly, they practiced their craft in practically every conversation. Right, walking down the hallway at school. Or, for example, meeting up for ice cream in the evening. You could say in passing something like, I just don't think nuts belong in ice cream. And you would get suddenly, predictably, why? Can you explain your position more fully? And you'd say, well, I just don't like them. And they'd say, so your bias is based solely in personal opinion and not logical reasoning? And you'd say, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> say, okay, fine, I find them as an unnecessary texture impingement, okay? And then you'd get a lecture. would start like this. But what of the old adage that variety is the spice of life? And doesn't our cultural milieu of consumer options suggest that socially we're dispositioned, if not obligated, to advance a variety of flavors for the sake of discovering, by way of economic natural selection, the virtue of nuts in ice cream? It would seem that the persistence of nutty ice cream in our culture gives evidence to the prevailing worth of nuts and just therefore rejects your sweeping value judgments. You say, God, please stop. I don't care anymore. Make it go away. And they say, ha, ergo, vis-a-vis, you are wrong. Checkmate. And you'd say, fine, Janice. (laughs) (laughs) So as trivial of an example as that might be, debates, I think, are generally good things to have. That includes simply describing the way the world works with your little kids who ask why over and over, but I think it also includes areas of faith, too. I was asked once if studying theology served to strengthen one's faith or to challenge one's faith, and my answer to that is that a challenged faith is a strengthened faith. Centuries of religious debates have shaped what we believe and the traditions we follow and how we worship, even this morning. And the challenging of our assumptions makes space for growth. In confirmation, I've asked students to debate phrases like, everybody is born good, and everything happens for a reason. And the students come up with truly inspirational conversations and conclusions to these things. 
Debate is good, even if our models for such things are somewhat rare. Presidential debates, if you can call them that today, seem to employ the strategy of just sheltering in place until it's your turn to deflect blame and grenades back at your opponent. I don't mean that that kind of debate is good, and I don't mean that checkmating someone to corner your opponent, that style of debate that attempts to establish an absolute winner is great. I don't think that's all that helpful. What I mean is good, I think, is back-and-forth dialogue for the sake of understanding, even when that understanding is inconvenient or sometimes threatening. Jesus is an inconvenient threat today. He is approached with a plan for a checkmate-style debate, but he maneuvers through it to ask a much better question of his opponents and of us, too. Matthew, the gospel writer, assumes that we know more than we probably do about the people in context today. So let's stroll through the gospel story a little bit. Here's what's happening. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's been in the news recently, but this is Jerusalem in Jesus' day, more or less. And he's got two sets of people, two groups who are actually adversaries with one another that come together today and they meet Jesus in the temple, which is up there. They're setting out to trap Jesus. And they do it while he is talking around a lot of folks in the holiest place in the land, the temple. The first of these groups is the Pharisees today. They are Jewish religious teachers. Their job is to read and interpret and teach Jewish texts, customs, and traditions, and the law, which is the entirety of what God wants, right? As it's told in the Torah, the scripture, they are Jews like Jesus, and in their job descriptions, they're supposed to interpret Things like Jesus. When they show up in the Bible, in scriptures, they're often challenging Jesus, and so they often get portrayed as the bad guys. There's even a Sunday school song that has helped to reinforce this unhelpfully. Any of you ever sing, I just want to be a sheep in Sunday school? Ba, 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 yeah. There's a part that says, I don't want to be a Pharisee. It's not fair, you see. And really, that's what's not fair, because it's an unhelpful portrayal of Pharisees. You would hopefully, if you had your own religious system challenged by someone, you would hopefully have your leaders, your religious leaders, go to bat for you and to push back on, to listen, interpret, and to wonder if something or someone was feeling off to you in your understanding of your faith. And this happens in this context. Your pastors get asked by you and by our colleagues and by our social circles about current events and movies and shows and personalities and whatever else the case might be. Debate is at the heart of what Pharisees do. It's their work as faithful Jews, and it's our work too, I think. But they are religious leaders of the Roman-occupied territory of Judea. They don't want Rome there, and in fact, after a century or so later, a century or so after this, when Rome crushes a Jewish revolt, they will rename that Rome will rename this whole region Palestine, specifically to try to separate Jewish tradition from this land. The second group we've got today is the Herodians. In contrast to the Pharisees, they benefit from Rome's presence. Herodians are a political faction, not a religious one. They support the Herods, like King Herod, not a great guy, neither was his dad, and so on. They're really a puppet government who get to kind of rule Judea on behalf of Rome. So while the Pharisees are religious, 
and would prefer Rome not to be there. The Herodians are political, less religious, and benefit from Rome being there because they get to play like they're in control. Pharisees and Herodians are not allies. They have different wishes regarding the empire, but today they come together because Jesus is a threat, and they want to trap him into incriminating himself so they can discredit or dispose of him. Jesus is a threat to the Pharisees and potentially Jewish people because if Rome hears that some Jew is amassing a big following, they could label it a rebellion, and Rome could just start crucifying people, or at least Jewish leaders, if they don't get this guy under control. And Jesus is a threat to the Herodians because they benefit from a nice, pacified, controlled, and taxable population that won't try and overthrow anybody, so the Herodians will allow so the Rome will allow the Herodians to continue to play government. And so these two groups bring Jesus this question, certainly in the presence of as many people as they can get to hear. They bring this question to Jesus. What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? And I think the or not kind of tips their hand, right? They're trying to make this an either or question. And either way that Jesus answers yes or no, they think they've got him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Well, if Jesus says yes, he gets caught contradicting himself and his message that true loyalty of faithful people is reserved for God and tribute should be made to God alone. Jesus could lose credibility with Jews who reject Roman rule and oppressive taxation and they might just say, well, he's just capitulating to the empire here. But, on the other hand, if Jesus says no, he gets caught rejecting Roman taxes and Roman rule, making him an anti-imperial revolutionary. He becomes a threat to Rome, maybe a troublemaker, and that would give them everything they needed to arrest and put him on trial. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He avoids the questions, but also lasers in on something more important for the Pharisees, the Herodians, and I think for you and me. He turns a question back on them, and he makes it not a matter of the commandment to pay taxes or not, but of the first commandment and of the greatest commandment, and that's these. Commandment number one, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven images or idols for yourself. And then this one, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The first commandment calls us to remember that God is God and we are not. And it's the only commandment that begins with the promise. I am the Lord your God. It's a promise that we have a God. It's the God and he's our God. And we should check our idols while we're remembering that. Anything that, as Martin Luther says, that we fear, love, and trust more than God Almighty is an idol. Well, when the Pharisees and the Herodians ask Jesus about the temple tax, Jesus wedges the question open, knowing that the Pharisees know this. They're aware of this. They know Deuteronomy 6. They know the first commandment. And Jesus says, show me the coin used for the tax. And I don't know at what point the Pharisees realize where this is going, but I'm sure they get it quickly because they have on them a denarius, a coin used for Roman taxation. It's behind there still. I tried to fix it. You can't see it, but their coin, the actual coin in question, is behind this block. And what's on the coin? 
an image of Tiberius Caesar with the titles Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest on one side, and also the words son of divine Augustus, kind of like Lord or son of God. That's printed on the coin that they bring to Jesus. It's a physical token of the broken first commandment that the Pharisees have on their person inside the temple ground. They bring forward to Jesus a graven image when they are asking about taxation laws, and they know that they've been caught a little bit. Well, they confirm for Jesus whose image is on the coin, and then Jesus says this, Give to Caesar who is what is Caesar's, and give to God's what is God's. And in the end of all things, when you zoom way out, what belongs to God? everything. And in the end, when you zoom way out, what belongs to Caesar? Not much. Jesus takes the object of their questioning, that coin, and uses it almost like a wedge that he hammers into a wider evaluation for them of who they are as a people of faith. In my recent sermons, I've made a list of what Jesus is not saying. I think some of you have found that helpful, so I'll do that again today. Jesus is not saying today that he is anti-tax or anti-government. He explicitly avoids saying that, in fact. He's not advocating for specific tax laws or spending bills or spending cuts. He avoids that, too. I don't even think he's actively avoiding or against the value of the question that he's being asked, except that he knows that it's being used only for the sake of trapping him. Jesus makes this today about the Pharisees and Herodians, about the people here and their resources and their own assessment, their own choices about what to do with their resources and what to do with themselves. And I think Jesus understands that the world is both simpler and far more complex than a simple black and white yes or no, an against us or for us sort of duality, polarity, or rivalry. Jesus understands that empires and civilizations and systems are complex. And I think he understands that it's easier to take shortcuts into absolutist thinking, yes or no, black and white. But the world is inconveniently more complicated than that. Remember back at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gets shunted out into the wilderness after his baptism to be tempted. And the temptations offered to Jesus were shortcuts to comfort and safety and to power, and he rejects them as convenient as they may have been. The question that Jesus turns back on his challengers and the questions for us to answer are bigger picture questions. What is this really about, people? What should this all, our worship, our loyalties, our questions, what should they really be about? And how does your faith inform how you are going to behave in the world? I think if we're honest, we too often join Jesus' challengers by trying to corner him, by compartmentalizing Jesus into the times and places and issues that are convenient for us, and in ways that align most conveniently with our schedules or our politics or our expenditures or our idols. But by God, Jesus is not convenient in and for all of these things. He's probably even a threat to how we prefer them. It would be convenient for the Pharisees and Herodians if Jesus would just give them a yes or a no, because then at least they would know what to do with him. But Jesus doesn't do that. 
It would be convenient if when Jesus asked us, what is this life really all about? What are you doing, people of God? It would be easy if we could just point with certainty to where Jesus stands on every single issue. But that's hard. The Lord of life knows that life is complex, and he invites us in to discern how following him informs what we do with what we call ours. Our time, our schedules, our money, our stuff, our possessions, and our opinions, and our relationships. So when you find yourselves in or around debates, people of God, whether it's about ice cream, or taxes, or human goodness, or Israel and Palestine, or salvation, zoom out for a bit. Ask what is God's, and ask what you are called to do with what you've been given, no matter how inconvenient it might be. And please avoid the convenience of absolutes, stories or opinions or positions. Faith isn't black and white and neither is the world. Instead, leave what is absolute to the love of God in Jesus, who took the cross and found the absoluteness of death only to bring with it absolution and reconciliation and life. Which again and always begs us to ask the question, What are you going to do with what you've been given? Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Farmington Lutheran Church, its ministries, and how to connect to this part of the body of Christ by going to farmingtonlutheran.com. Peace be with you.